Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. This is not what I'm going to read, but while we're turning to John chapter 10, 2 Timothy 3, 1, in the last days perilous times shall come, and they have come. All right, John chapter 10, let's read from verse 7 until verse 10. So we're going to read John 10, 10. That's the scripture I want to talk about, beginning at verse 7. It says, Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Let's add verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So I've given this message a title that doesn't precisely come from the Bible, but rather from a statement made by a man. I'm going to just share his story with you. Where there's life, there's hope. So here we have, at the time, a young man making this statement near the end of his life. And he's telling the story of how at 21 years of age, having completed his undergraduate work, master's level work, wanted to go to Cambridge University, was going to Cambridge University to finish his PhD. One day he just found himself on the floor. He couldn't get up, he couldn't move. His mother was there and she knew something was radically wrong. He knew intuitively something is radically wrong. There's just something not right. So they took him to the hospital and after some tests on examination, he was diagnosed with a motor neurone disorder. The doctors said to him, there's nothing we can do. Maybe four years from now, it will take your life. So he was supposed to die at age 25. When he tells the story and recounts this incident, he says how he became very depressed. He began to rationalize, what's the sense of going after my PhD when I'm not even gonna be around? But the disease started to slow down a little bit. And he went on to say something that I think is very interesting. And these are his words. He said, when my expectation was zero, meaning he was going to die. He said, when my expectations turned to zero, he said, I counted every day as a blessing. Which by the way, just as a parenthetical statement, is a real advantage if you know you're gonna die. The sun seems brighter, trees, colors, brighter. Everything seems as a benefit to you because after all, this could be your last day on earth. Spend your time wisely. As the disease slowed down, he became encouraged and went on to complete his PhD. Then some other events happened to him. He got engaged, met a woman and got engaged, and his spirits were lifted up. Well, after 55 years of dealing with this disease of a motor neuron disorder, he made this statement, and I want to read it to you because these are some of his last words while he was still on earth. Listen to what he said. He said, remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious, and however difficult life may seem, there's always something you can do and succeed at. It matters that you just don't give up. As long as there's life, there's hope. So he lived to age 76, and these were his words. Let me read them again. 
Remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious, and however difficult life may seem, there is something you can always do and succeed at. It matters that you just don't give up. As long as there's life, there's hope. What's interesting to me about this man's story and about this man's life is that he went on to not just accomplish a PhD, but to add so much information previously we didn't know much about concerning the universe. His specialty was cosmology and theoretical physics. His name was Stephen Hawking. And what I find equally amazing is that as he ends his life, he still commits to being an atheist. Now, I want to just say something here. Again, it's parenthetical. Don't be too hard on people who make statements that they're atheists and so on, or whatever they say, because it's not Jesus' way. But it's still a mystery to me how men can do these things, especially studying the universe, and see as much as they see and then draw a conclusion. Carl Sagan, and even Albert Einstein's view of God was a pantheistic view. God is everywhere. God is everything. The universe is God. You know, trees are God. It's amazing to me, and this is going to be a very key verse when we get to it. It's amazing to me that men of great intellects can draw conclusions that in my own mind are absurd. Stephen Hawking, just to give you a little bit about what his discoveries were, it's interesting again to me that Stephen Hawking could figure out that Earth as we know it, he believed, would be destroyed. And this is why when I study or if I've done a few dissertations, I like quoting from secular sources that actually unintentionally endorse the Bible, because that's exactly what the Bible says. Not the Earth as much as it says the world, the end of the world. When will these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Well, we know that because we've read the Bible. Yes, Stephen Hawking came apparently independently to that conclusion, stating that within a thousand years, he says, if it's not an asteroid colliding with the planet, which Jesus talked about that, uh, he had all kinds of theories. The planet just simply heating up from people being on overpopulation, climate change, and other things. He came to the conclusion that artificial intelligence was actually something very dangerous, and we have a lot of that now. He made a massive contributions to the study of black holes in the universe. Now, I present him to you because we're so used to hearing testimonies of people who are either already Christian or they became Christian, and like C.S. Lewis turned from being an atheist to a Christian, and we, we read his works. But I didn't expect... Uh, we don't expect a Stephen Hawking to say, there's always hope. As long as there's life, there's always hope. Now look up at the stars, and don't look down at your feet. I mean, he had every reason to be defeated, but he wasn't defeated, and he did it without acknowledging God. I've always thought to myself, if these people can accomplish such great things without acknowledging God, how much more can the average Christian do by acknowledging God, by doing what God has said? And he's right. As long as there's life, there's hope. So Jesus tells us in verse 10 of John 10, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. As a commentary on verse 10, at least I've often heard it stated that, well, the thief is Satan which can fit, but the context is not Satan. The context of what we read before us is the teachers that came before him, other teachers. We could say presumably Jewish, but not exclusively. Those that came before me, look at verse 9. 
uh, verse 8 rather, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. It's a kind of a confrontational thing to call someone a thief. Your teaching is thievery. You're robbing the people of my rightful place. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. And also keep in mind, because I was thinking about this yesterday, that this man is only 30 years old. I mean, my youngest son is almost 30 years old, and all my other children are above it. And I'm trying to think of a young man at age 30 saying all these incredible things. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. I'm the way. I'm the truth. His death on the cross and all of these things. And always, as I've told you before, everything circulates around the person of Jesus. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have a New Testament. Old Testament can stand without Moses. Many things in the Old Testament can stand, but without Jesus in the New Testament, we have nothing. And so I find it intriguing. I always do when people who profess there is no God find some way to be positive about life, even though Hawkins' further belief is that there is nothing after this life. For all his brilliance and all of his intelligence, I'm thinking if I had that type of mentality, number one, I wouldn't be living the way I'm living now. That's for certain. More than that, knowing my own personality, I think I would be habitually depressed. There's nothing after this. Like Solomon, I mean, in the sense of he did everything. He had a thousand wives, which led his heart away from the Lord. With no intentional disrespect to my wife, one is enough. He had 999 more than I have ever had or ever will have. But of course, he was different in this respect. He wasn't an atheist. And I find it intriguing that people who don't acknowledge God or try to dismiss him, even in their arguments, can come up with this, hey, look at the stars. Try to make sense. How do you make sense of it all if there's no God? How do you not look down at the ground if, as he believed also, that one of the possibilities of how we would destroy ourselves, if it wasn't an asteroid collision, would be the fact of a nuclear war, that he was sure that is going to happen somewhere within the next thousand years. So now I'm saying to myself when I read these things, and I've read them before, these are intelligent people. And how do they dismiss God? And how do you find it? I mean, if I could meet him and I was not born again, I didn't know what I know, I would have to say, you know, Dr. Hawkins, how am I supposed to look up at the stars and have hope? And there's nothing after me. He believed that we're like computers that just eventually wear down and we're broken and we're not good for anything. And so it's just discarded in the next life. I don't know if you find that cheerful. I don't. If I thought that everything I've done for the last 44 years was an absolute positive waste of time, then I would say, okay, well, then I'm going to spend whatever few years I have left just really giving it a good shot. Because after that, a broken down computer is just going to be wasted and destroyed and thrown away. It doesn't make sense to live like we're living. But if this is true, if Jesus resurrects the dead, if there is life in eternity, if eternity is where God is, God is eternal and all this, then it changes everything. It changes your entire perspective on life. With this in mind, let me share with you just two thoughts today. Number one, Jesus gives us life through his death. And that's easier to receive than the second one, that Jesus gives us life through our death. So let's take a look at it. In John chapter 3, where we begin to learn about this necessity of being born again. We begin at verse 13. John chapter 3, verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now let me just stop there for a moment. 
and state again what would be obvious if we just reverse the statement. It states this in John 3 anyway. If we believe in him, we would not perish. So what would it be if we don't believe in him? We will perish. And Jesus spoke much about this. Okay, so we go on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I want to stop there again. For these teachings that we hear coming from various sects of Christianity, one is that we are all gods. One is taught by, um, and I believe it's Joyce Meyer, how Jesus became the Son of God. These are old heresies, old heresies. All you need to know is this here, monogenes, only begotten. He's not a begotten and we're all begotten. We are adopted. We have received the adoption of children, the Apostle Paul writes. Here it says, now he's the only one that was begotten and whatever God begets is God. That's whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What happens if we don't believe on him? We're going to perish, and we don't have everlasting life. Not the kind that God has, or God gives. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Just much like we read the verse in 1 Corinthians 11, that communion. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. It's not that so much the rejection of Jesus begins the condemnation. What is being stated here is that man is already under the sentence of condemnation. Receiving Christ brings us to that place of not being condemned. He that doesn't believe is already condemned. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world... And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And I mentioned to you earlier, this is an example of what we need to do. And it is an example, if you've come to Christ, how you came to Christ. You were able and you were willing to acknowledge, I am wrong. I say to you that it's human nature. And we see much of it in the church, which is very unfortunate. Professing Christians pointing out the faults of everybody around them. I've often told you, since I'm a public figure, I've been in a small city for 35 years, going on 35 years, it's pretty easy to find my faults. I mean, I'm literally a walking target. Many of you are not. But if you investigate people's lives, you'll start to find, ah, I see, yeah. And I'm not like that. And this is what I brought to you, I think it was last week, when the tax gatherer, the publican, is over here beating his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Because he realizes what he's done and that he is wrong. The Pharisee stands as another example of someone who's looking down at the, uh, keeping in mind, a Pharisee, a Jew, and a tax gatherer, the publican, because they're both Jews. They don't get along. This guy works for Rome. He works for the government. And the Pharisee says, I'm so grateful I'm not like him. And he talks about how he gives tithes and his prayer life and whatever. And Jesus, in using that example, that parable, he says, I tell you the truth. The publican was justified before God. The other was condemned. And just again as a thought, how does it sneak into the church when, and I won't ask for a raise of hands, but when so many of us came to Christ when we were at a low, low point, not just broken and depressed alone, we came to Christ when, not everybody, but our lives were really breaking all the commandments of God. Just think about it later on. How is it that after a few years, that same person has this, I'm glad I'm not like him. Do you forget where you were? Do you? Amen. Well, some do. I've been doing what I've been doing for a long, long time. 
And all of a sudden, the person who was shown quite a bit of mercy, and I'm telling you from a personal point of view of dealing with people, becomes one of the least merciful people in the church. Yeah. Because human nature dictates that we have that pharisaical propensity. I'm glad I'm not like him. Now here's one for you. And try not to say anything at all. Knowing that the majority of you and myself here vote conservatively, what do we do with Christians who belong to the Democratic Party? Well, I'm glad I'm not like them. You see, we have some fundamental principles that I think is going to take some time and going to take some thought to unravel them biblically. Because Jesus didn't come as a politician. If Jesus came as a politician, I wouldn't trust him. But if Jesus came as a politician, then he wouldn't have said no when the people said, we're going to make you a king. They wanted to make him a king. He's already a king. They wanted to make him a king according to their political ambitions. I'll say it to you again. If that's the same in our country, they want the all-American Jesus. And Jesus is not an American. Jesus, if anything, obviously is a Jew. But he's got his problems there too. Because he offends Jewish tradition, not biblical tradition. He offends the writings and statements of Jewish leaders. He calls them here thieves and robbers. That's not a polite term. That's not light. Those that came before me were thieves and they were robbers. He wasn't talking about the prophets. They pointed to his coming. He's talking about the ones around him. Let me go a little further with this here. From my point of view, and I'm just saying from my point of view, that's it. I'm not saying it's yours. It's mine. I see problems coming from the right. A trick of the enemy, you can read this in C.S. Lewis, a trick of the enemy is to get us so involved in things that we mix up what's biblical and what is maybe expedient. We must stick with what is biblical. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Let me say something further. We are presented in this country right now with a real problem of Marxism, communism, socialism, all of which are against God. They're atheistic solutions and atheistic beliefs. I'm not diminishing the problems. I'm trying to accent the answer. When Andre Crouch wrote the song many years ago, Jesus is the answer for the world today, I then and now wholeheartedly agree. It's the doctrine of Jesus that we need not that everyone is going to accept that, but that's what we need. We need Jesus. So Jesus says there's already condemnation in the world. And let's go a little further. As I just read to you, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For us, we come to Christ and we say, this specific deed in my life, deeds, habits, is wrong. And God, I confess it to you. It's wrong. I turn from it. God, this is wrong. I turn from it. God, this is wrong. I turn from it. That's called repentance. We are now bringing the evil to the light and saying to God, like the publican, we're saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. And that's called humility. Jesus, I quoted earlier to you, he's humble. Come unto me, in Matthew 11, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavily laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. If you're looking for rest for your soul in any other place but Jesus, I will tell you now, you will not find it. And if you have a palliation of your anxieties and your fears and whatever else you deal with, and it's a kind of a numbing effect, what you will sound like when you meet other people, you will sound like this superior individual. But if you're really growing in Christ... Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's now we know we're learning. Christ is increasing, 
and we are decreasing. But you have to come to the light. Where there's life, there's always hope. And we have the life of Christ, not just a political philosophy. We have the life of Christ. And so men don't come to Christ because their deeds are evil. They don't want them to be exposed. They don't want to have to acknowledge that alcoholism is wrong, sinful. Drug addiction is wrong, it's sinful, but more than that. For those who will say how homosexuality is this and that, they're also very proud at the same time to be a real man that can take down women. I read an author, he writes on a couple of different lines. I read only on one line. I still think he's a pretty good author on certain subjects, and I was astonished. He's not Christian. Well, I don't know that he's Christian. On the other hand, he writes books like How to Get a Woman to Spread Her Legs. I was stunned that the guy who wrote this book also wrote that book. I'm saying this to you, and that's supposed to be a real man. Maybe by some people's standards, but not by this one. Amen. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let me say something else. Beards have become fashionable primarily ever since I grew on. And I don't know how beard and tattoos go together, but that's also fashionable. Old guys, too. However, they connect a beard to other things, such as adultery. That's supposed to be you know, rugged manliness. What women do is something altogether different. My point is this. When it's wrong, it's wrong. And you can't put a happy a little sticker on it and say, he's just being a man. Or whatever, again, what women do. The fact is that when God says, this is wrong, this is evil, this is sinful... We agree with him, and we come to Christ and we say, it's wrong, it's sinful, I turn from it. Now we have the light. Now we know we have the real deal. So they don't come to the light. Everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. So this is the secret now, if I may say so, of why a motivational speaker who just uses Bible verses the way we use seasoning it's so popular because people can be doing the wrong thing, still professing Christ, have a Bible in the hand and never be reproved by the word of God. This is problematic in our time, but I won't go down that trail for the moment. This is the book. These are the words of Jesus Christ, of his apostles, of the prophets. This is the word of God. And we must find ourselves squarely on the foundation of the Bible and what it says. Let me say it one more time. During the communion service, which we have every Sunday, I read to you from 1 Corinthians 11 that states, if a person takes the communion supper in a fashion that is not worthy, not discerning the Lord's body and blood, what it actually represents, what I'm talking about, his death on the cross and resurrection as well, then he says they eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And he says, for this reason, in your local fellowship, some are weak, some are very sick, and some are dead. And I just ask you to consider this. You really believe that? I mean, a man like Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan and others would laugh at that. <laughs> joke. These guys are so naive, so stupid. Are we? The man with an experience is never at the mercy of the man with an argument. That they may know you, Jesus said. I know whom I believe, the Apostle Paul said. I know him. And I am persuaded. But yet these are the things that escape us because, let's face it, if we had 30, 40, 50,000 people here that are all given, you know, money, and I don't live in a house, I live in a compound. And then, you know, we go from there. Well, I've got to think twice about what I'm going to say from the pulpit. Because people may stop coming, people may stop giving. And after all, I've got to make the nut. Running a compound is an expensive deal. So if I offend you, with the words of Jesus, by the way, I can't afford that. So I'm going to say to you, you're going to make it. 
And you use that charisma and that charm and that personality and the lights and the camera action. And no one goes home learning that there's a heaven and there's a hell. And the cross stands in between the two. And that the truth of the gospel found in John chapter 3 and other places is that the evil is brought to the light by the preacher, by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. And men repent or they don't. And Jesus' words here is that they're either saved and they won't perish or they're not saved. That's the gospel. I don't think it's any more popular now than it was 2,000 years ago. But it's still the gospel. It's still Jesus giving us life through his own death. Now, let me get to this. All right, so that's all good. You say, well, I'm willing to accept that. Amen. It's all by grace, brother. I agree. It is. The Bible says so. But the question is, what does that grace do? I mean, how do you know that you got it? Well, some woman said to me, she was a great fan and follower of Reverend Ike, if you can remember him. I mean, this man would come out and state plainly, I want your money. At least you got to give him that much. He wasn't sneaking it in. He just said, no, I want your money. She liked to do a few other things too, quite a few other things. And she still professed to be a Christian. So one day I talked to her, we were on a job on the job, and I said, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, how does that work? And I said, oh, well, you know, she said, I've been baptized. And I said, well, okay, fine, but what about this? I've been baptized. And that's as far as the talk ever got. I've been baptized. Because some people are taught, well, we need to be baptized, yes, but they're not taught what baptism represents. So now we move from the death of Christ giving us life to our own death. And that's where things get rough. That's when people say, gee, you know, Pastor, I really like you preaching. I really do. But I think, you know, one by one, the parable says, and they began to make excuse because now the truth is really hitting home. And in this age, someone may say, I'm stressed enough to have Pastor Ray stress me even more. I'm not trying to stress. That's why I do a daily show on anxiety and depression. I'm not trying to stress you. But I refuse to back off the words of Jesus Christ. I refuse. I refuse to accommodate people who say, we won't come back. I don't openly say to people, fine, don't come back. Because I just told you, we got reduced down to just a couple of people here, and I know that you're committed, and I hope you know that I'm committed. I'm good. I learned a long time ago, I don't need a crowd to validate me. As long as I know who I am, I'm good. I'm good. Plus, how long is it from here to the grave anyway for me? It's not that far. It's barely a jog. So <laughs> be faithful to the end. Come with me to Romans chapter 6. Let's find out how we now have life through our own death in Christ. Verse 1, Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin, and take the word sin out and just put in whatever you want. Anger, frustration, self-righteousness, blame, self-pity, whatever you want. Adultery. How shall we live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized in Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's not in the hereafter, that's now. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, right? so we're not physically crucified, but baptism represents the analogy or the metaphor. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. That means now. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. So let's stop for a moment there. And let me say to you, 
Who were you? What were you like before you came to Christ? What was your reputation? Think about it for just a second. And what this book is saying, what the Bible is saying is that that person is dead. 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 We don't go around doing the exact same things we did years ago, months ago, whatever the case may be for you, and say, oh, but I've been baptized. It's intellectually ridiculous, and it's theologically and biblically ridiculous statement. Better off just facing the truth. You were dunked in water, but you haven't changed one bit. Not at all. You haven't changed in your thinking. You haven't changed in your speech. And if um, worst case scenarios, now you've become a Pharisee. You know, I have people that talk to me very plainly. They don't have any problem using vulgarity. And for me personally, I don't correct them and say, how can you talk to me like that? Most people don't do it, but there are some. And they know I'm a pastor. They just talk the way they talk. The reason it doesn't trouble me so much is because I used to talk just like that. So I just let it go over my head and try to find a way in to speak the truth. So here's a man who professes Christ. I had a leading one day, so I said, sit down for a second, I want to talk to you. I said, you know, you say this and you say this, but you know and I know that I know the truth about you. When are you going to be the real deal? When are you going to stop all this facade of, you know, and you don't need to talk to me in the religious tone. You want to be vulgar, which most times he is, just be vulgar. I don't need the scripture verses. I already know them. Let's get down to the reality. When are you going to be the real deal? You have the potential to be the real deal. And he received it well. But as far as I can see, there's been no change. See, whatever you were is past. That's not me. That's not you anymore. Amen. That's what it means to be baptized. That's why we don't baptize infants. We dedicate them to the Lord. Baptism comes at a point in time, even if it's a fundamental juvenile and childlike understanding, we baptize them later on when they can have some understanding of what this means. Here we go. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. You only bury things that are dead. Like was Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That hence, from this time forward, that henceforth we should not serve sin for he that is dead is freed from sin. Go out to the local cemeteries all around here, which, you know, obviously many of us do know people that are in the cemetery, and think about what they were. Were they a threat to the community? They're not now, and only for one reason, they're dead. That's it. Did they have a habit of this, and a habit of that, and a habit of this, and a habit of that? Well, they don't anymore because they're dead. And that's what it means to be baptized. You don't just go around doing everything you used to do and say, I've been baptized, because the preacher said that's what it's really all about. That's all you need to know. That's not all you need to know. You need to know what baptism is, and this is it. Now the life of Christ comes through us, through our death in him. Come with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, let me just say this. It doesn't make us perfect because we do fall into sin. It's just that we don't practice it anymore. We don't practice it anymore. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. 
They that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Have you ever been at, I'm just thinking, it comes in my mind, uh, the Christian wedding? Now, obviously, I've done many of them. And then we go through the ceremonies in Christ. In my ceremonies, Christ is directly in the center, not the bride and the groom, Christ. And then they enter into covenant, which is related to Christ, and that's just great, you know? Well, after a while, maybe at the reception, and there's a few introductions and a few other things, as one hour passes into two, then you're watching everybody drunk. Didn't the Bible forbid that? Huh? Didn't the Bible say that drunkards are on a long list of people who don't make the kingdom? Well, how does this work? It works from biblical illiteracy. I can understand someone rejecting the Bible as long as they've been presented the Bible in its context. This is what it says. For me, I accepted the Bible in its context, and I'm glad that I did, because through experience, I've found it works. Again, I give you this little credo. I've never been able to find out who came up with it. The man with an experience is never at the mercy of the man with an argument. Obviously, some experiences are subject to examination and say, well, you're thinking wrong. That wasn't really the case. It was a delusion, whatever. But we can come to the place where we experience Christ as we see him here in the book so that no one can shake that faith. No one can shake that life. I will say to you that that is the compelling evidence that some people are looking for. The compelling evidence of a life that is so changed they can't argue against it. Robert Ingersoll, the great atheist of the 19th century, he gave some formidable arguments. In many cases, they were hard to be defended by the Christians. One night in a meeting, as he was once again rambling against Christianity, his father was a co-worker with Charles Finney, dedicated Christian. He became a total atheist, hated Christianity. And one night, a man got up in one of his meetings, and he told the story of how he was converted and how he gave up his alcohol. He used to go home and do all kinds of incredibly bad things to his wife, go spend the money, the family didn't have enough. And then he began to share how since he accepted Christ and he gave up the drinking and the marriage is improving, you better, and all of this, he said, what do you say against that? And Robert Ingersoll said something to the effect, I don't have the exact statement here, but he said something to the effect that he couldn't argue with Christ. It's rather with Christianity. Well, that may be a convoluted answer, but I think I get the point. You can't argue with a changed life. And if I was an antagonist of Christianity, I would be a Robert Ingersoll. I think I could bring up more points why people shouldn't be a Christian by just pulling their life apart. Where is the compelling evidence that we actually have something more than what the world has? Now, it's all here. It's in the book. But if we don't practice it, it just becomes a theory. And to many, it's an unworkable theory. I have a theory, a belief, about atheists. It's not they're dismissing God for intelligence, but for emotional reasons. Like, for instance, Stephen Hawking. I can understand that fact that he was down with this disease and lived that way, and if there really was a God and there wouldn't be suffering and wars and sickness, and why didn't he do something? Ted Turner turned away from Christ years ago when he went to a tent meeting and his aunt was sick and looking for healing for the aunt. The aunt wasn't healed. He got angry with God and turned away. But that's emotional. It's still not giving God his rightful place. But in any case, I will submit to you that the most compelling story, or evidence rather, is your story, is your life. But if you're just like the neighbors, how is that compelling? I can tell you this much. It never compelled me. Am I a perfect man? I'm far from it. But I'm an honest man, and I'm able to say when I'm wrong. We look down in chapter 8. It says, The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Look further down. 
because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Going a little further down, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. If actually you have the spirit of God, then you're not in the flesh. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. See, the book here, the way we use the word religion, religion is not a bad word, but the way we use it, what the Bible is saying here is that it's not the religious, it's those that truly have the spirit of Christ. And if they don't have the spirit of Christ, even if they were to memorize every verse, every word of scripture, they're simply not Christ's. Remember, the intellect can do many amazing things. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the spirit do mortify, it means put to death, the deeds of the body, ye shall live. How much truth do we really want? I will submit to you that it's a lot easier to just go and hear a preacher saying, this is going to be the best day of your life. Amen. You've been baptized? Amen. That's it. That's all you need. Or even further, the preacher who's now passed away, who got up in front of his audience on more than one occasion and stated that there's people that think that the work of the church is going to get done through this book. It is not going to get done from this book. It's going to get done through me. <laughs> A friend of mine was there at that meeting who had his Bible, and he held it way up in the air. A lot of people there. He said, not me, brother. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Another woman tried to walk out of the meeting. She's a big Buxton type of a woman from Brooklyn. She got up and she started walking out. And he went and said to the ushers, stop that woman. You know, you don't stop anybody from New York City, but especially a big Buxton woman. She said, get out of my way. Boom. Good for her. Amen. Good for the friend of mine who had the guts to say, hold on. This is the word of God. And your erroneous, heretical, demonic doctrine that's going to get done through you. Yet people are gobbling up this nonsense and walking out with erroneous ideas that are not stated here. I started off the message by talking about Stephen Hawking. Let me finish with some thoughts from Carl Sagan. In 1995, he wrote a book called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark, and I want to read just a little bit from that. Now listen carefully. This is Carl Sagan. He died in 1996, so he's been gone for 25 years. Science is more than a body of knowledge, he wrote. It is a way of thinking. I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues. Does it sound like where we're living now? That's 25 years ago. When the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority. Now, I've done that, and it hasn't always worked out well for me, at least in one way of thinking. But as far as I'm concerned, it has set me free. When clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical factories in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. Now, Carl Sagan, it is a debatable point. Was he actually an atheist? Well, he functioned as one. But I just want to give this to you. He wrote this in 1996, and that was the year he died. I am not an atheist. An atheist is someone who has compelling evidence that there is no Judeo-Christian Islamic God. I am not that wise, he wrote. 
but neither do I consider there to be any approaching adequate evidence for such a God. Now, this is a man who's been looking into the sky, just like Stephen Hawking and others. I would think that that would be enough evidence. It would be enough evidence for me, but it wasn't for them, apparently. He says, why are you in such a hurry to make up your mind? Why not simply wait until there is compelling evidence? Compelling evidence. When we go over here to the book of Acts, and we read in the first chapter, we see these words from a physician, Luke, and he says this, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he had through the Holy Ghost given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. The whole book was filled with proof. And what was the main proof? It was changed lives. It was the fact that his own apostles who deserted him were now going out and preaching boldly and were willing to be killed, and they were. It was the fact that tens and hundreds of thousands, for first thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands were coming to Christ through their teaching and preaching, and they're turning everything upside down. So much so that persecution had to come from the government. I would say that's compelling. That is something that is hard to dispute. Roman soldiers and others coming to Christ and renouncing their evil deeds, which they did, by the way, during the ministry of Christ as well. I will submit to you that one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that we can give the world is our lives, a changed life. See, many of you, well, the fact is nobody here that knew me before I was saved, and most people don't. On social media, though, there are people who did. I had a friend of mine found me on social media after many, many long years, just looking for Raymond Barnett, Ray Barnett. Whatever became of Ray Barnett, evidently they didn't know. She didn't know. She's a reverend friend of my name. He's a what? And when she friended me, she said, you're a minister? And I said, yeah, who'd have thunk it? Well, that's a long time ago. But if you look at my social media, if you follow me, why do I put training photos up there? Why do I put some of the accomplishments academically? It's as a testimony from the guy that many people said, this is not a guy that's going to make it. And I made it. But I didn't make it through guts and willpower and grit. I made it through Christ Jesus. I do not, and I will not, diminish the intelligence of Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Carl Sagan, and many other brilliant minds. I am saying they have brilliant minds. And here's something stunning. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in his sight. Here's a man who look and see billions of galaxies. Not a galaxy, that's a lot of stars to begin with. Billions. Hawking predicted that we'd be able to map out all the galaxies. Billions of them. And get more of an idea of why we're here. How we got here, even though we're just a bunch of particles of nature, according to him. And God says here, Jesus says, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is Matthew 11, 25, 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid them. You have hid them from the wise, Safas, and the prudent, Sunni Amy, and revealed them unto babes. Here's a loose translation. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I'm grateful that you hid all this from wise and educated people and showed it to ordinary people. If you've read some of the books, and I've read some of the books of the people that I've mentioned and others, they are sophisticated. I am not diminishing their intellect. I am not saying they were stupid people. I am saying that God saw fit, for whatever his reason is, after they examined the expanses of the universe or go down onto the molecular level and look at all these things, 
There's a blinder put on their eyes where they can't see what you can see, what I can see. An ordinary guy. The people said, he'll never amount to anything. And I made it. But I made it because he took an ordinary guy and put in that ordinary guy his spirit, his word, that a babe can confound the wise. No man can come to the Father, Jesus said. Unless, no one can come to the Son, rather, unless the Father draws him. And these are the mysteries that we live with. For you today and for me, we are exhorted not to fear their fears. That's in here. It's in this book. It's in the Bible. What's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with that? And he says, don't you fear what they fear. Because the one thing they never factor in is this. God. If we continue on the course, then this, and they factor this all out statistically, mathematically, philosophically, but they never factor in that God is going to return and set up his kingdom. Thy kingdom come. I agree with Hawking. There's always hope as long as there's life. And Jesus came to give us life eternally, and we have that life now. Now, here's the thing. Will you be the compelling evidence that others will see? Will you be the epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote about that others will read who may never pick up a Bible? Do not pervert Jesus Christ. I shouldn't say pervert. Do not convert Jesus Christ. He's not Italian, and he's not Irish. He was not a Republican, a conservative. He was not a liberal. He was not a Democrat. He was a Jew, and he was God Almighty. Amen. Is God Almighty. Who was, who is, and he is to come. Yes. Let's pray, and I want to just take you one more time to this place of self-examination. I want to assure you, as you pray for me, I am working on myself. I want you to do the same. Work on you. If we all do that, we'll be in a good place. Father, we just come to you today. I'm in agreement with the words of Stephen Hawking, where there's life, there's hope, and we have the life of Christ. Help us today, Lord, to continue to go forward, because we do not have the power to save anybody. You are the Savior. But I do pray, God, that we would be the people who spend their time improving themselves in Christ, and therefore earn either the respect or in some cases the right, but in any case have the power to be a witness. Help us, God, to put away that superficial profession that simply says, I've been baptized. Well, anybody can see their life is exactly the same as anyone else's. Also, Father, help us not to be caught up in that fear or fears, plural, that everyone else is caught up in. You told us, don't. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that your heart is not troubled. God, because of the life of Christ, there's always hope for us. Always. And I ask you today, God, to come and touch each one of us. Father God, pour out your spirit that when people meet us, they may see and sense an air of humility that we speak as one saved sinner to another. Help us, God, to be the real deal. God, we just thank you. God, we bless you. God, we praise you. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, both now and forever. We give you all the praise, give you all the glory, give you all the honor today. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me this morning? Amen. Amen. amen.